This podcast is brought to you by My First Million. My First Million is one of my favorite podcasts, and you should check it out because you'll learn about technology, the future, where the world is going from two people who have sold businesses. And it's one of my favorites. I recommend it to friends all the time, and I think you'll enjoy it too. Search My First Million wherever you listen on YouTube, Spotify, and enjoy that podcast. Jonathan, thank you for coming on the podcast today. I've been researching your story. I'm super excited to talk to you today. You're, Thanks for having me. You're a philosophical and computer science and math. You've got all different parts of you that are are really, there's so much to explore here. I'm like, I'm chomping at the bit. So thank you for coming here today. Yeah, thanks, for, thanks for having me, especially in this amazing setting. Yeah. So I'd love to start with episode one of the lecture series you did. And particularly the moment where you're playing Michael Jordan in the background, you have stomach cramps or something, you're repeating to yourself, flu game, flu game, flu game. What was that experience like when you're on your 10th hour or something crazy of recording and filming and you have to finally come face to face with your demons or feeling an illness of some sort? Yeah, no, and maybe to, to give our, our listeners proper proper background, um, uh, you know, we, we created these these lectures. I, I actually created the content of the lectures about a few years uh, ago back in college. I was going to film them with, with David, who's a good, good friend of mine and has been since since college. And COVID sort of um, knocked that those those plans uh, off the off the chart, so to speak. And so, you know, David was, was pushing me to do it. And we, we got a grant from from Professor Tyler Cowan, and so we're like, why not? And, and the grant was enlarged. And if I shared with you the budget, you'd be, I think, surprised, like how little, uh, how, like how, how much we managed to squeeze out, out of that amount. So, which means that we had to rent the most, uh, the, be- the, the the most awesome uh, like boutique hotel we could find in Austin, because Austin, like, keep Austin weird, you know, it's a very modern place. We wanted to find a really classical aesthetic, and it wasn't easy. And it was surely as hell, it, it wasn't cheap. And so we found that, and we can only rent it for like three days. Now we had, you know, seven lectures planned, and each of these lectures were like an hour and a half, an hour forty, hour ten. So it's like ten hours of lectures, and and that's like the end product. But each of these took like two x, three x time to film. So it took like three, four hours, you know. And so so that's like you know thirty hours spread over three days. It was like literally ten hours of lecturing, and I, I didn't realize. So I, I and I didn't know, right? I didn't know that, right? Because I, I didn't know how long it was going to take. There's just so many repeats and refilms, and and so we get there. The first day set up, we stay until like you know, midnight, essentially. I, I go to bed. I wake up at five. I, you know, I can't, can't go back to sleep. I was just way too excited. Um, and then I just start filming at, at like seven, eight. And then we go all the way until like 11 p.m. again. And we do this for two nights. And I'm just so exhausted and stressed. And I just had re- I have really bad like uh, pre-existing like stomach problems, like nothing serious, but just a lot of cramps. And so in, in last night, or, or the night before the last shoot, I just got these terrible cramps, uh, and I just couldn't sleep for like most of the night. And I was like, damn, like if I don't film this, if I don't finish the the rest like ten hours, like the whole I'm gonna have to go back to Professor Cowan again to ask for more money. And then so, I don't know where I pulled it out of me, but I, I, I actually put on my my Jordan sneakers, like the flu game. I think it was the six or the twelve. I can't remember, but but I knew I had them. And I just watch as like. Game six real highlights over and over again. I mean, I, I come from a big sports background. And so, and this also speaks partially to, 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 to Gerard and mimetic theory as well, right? The importance of models and, and the people that, that influence you. And so, uh, I, this is going to be a funny story. I asked David, so we, we, we lived together. 
and we were driving to the hotel, I asked him to, to take the bumpy road so it would help me pass gas. So I farted a lot in his car, which I was really happy about just for that case. But but it also helped to help with the cramping. And so it was a great way to start the podcast, by the way. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I, I don't know how I managed to, to pull that off. But those were some of the most stressful days of my life. Like, yeah. Wow. Well, thank God for the bumpy roads. But <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. But you mentioned David a couple of times. I want to set the scene for people who is David Perel and how did you get to know him? Yeah, so David is a good friend of mine. Uh, I think he was 24 and I was about 19, 20 when we met. Um, we were introduced to another really good friend of mine, uh, Jeremy, and he started hosting reading groups in, back in New York. This was when I was still going to school here in, in the city and David was uh, hosting reading groups and, and so we just naturally be, became friends. There were like philosophy reading groups and David, uh, some of our listeners, probably know he hosts a writing school called the, the, the rite of passage and he basically teaches people uh how to how to you know uh write and communicate your ideas online and i think there's really you know two parts of his school w one is like teaching you how to write and one is teaching you how to distribute and connect to the world and and, and for me I, I was pretty set and stubbornly in my ways of how to write but i took when i took the rite of passage i learned so much about building an audience and distributing ideas in, in the 21st century and you know uh that, that's part also uh, what was interesting about the lectures as well is that this was a new form a new form that I was experiencing of trying to communicate you know somewhat sophisticated ideas that you could you know find in a uh, advanced intermediate undergraduate course but into a much more popular audience so mm. well what did you change about your writing when you took the course so my writing itself I actually changed nothing um in fact David and I we were sort of joking that there is a efficient frontier of writing in the same way there's an efficient frontier of you know producing two goods the classic you know e economics example uh, and the two sort of trade-offs for writing, I think, are profundity and accessibility, or maybe not profundity, maybe um, sophistication and nuance mm. to accessibility, right? Yeah. You probably, the most sophisticated analytical philosophy, you know, no one would want to touch that with a 10-foot pole, and the most accessible, to think about, like, the viral tweet threads, like, the really, really viral, like, mm -hmm. basic tweet threads, and so... Um, so, so I think taking David's course made me realize that there was a trade-off there, hmm. and, and more importantly... It, it, I think it helped me realize, not only seeing David, but seeing a lot of uh, other of my friends, and, and even friends in the academy who are doing different types of philosophy, right? analytical philosophy, continental theory, uh, you know, political th theory. It made, it made me realize that all the different points on the graph were equally, uh, if not insightful, they were equally valid. So another way to put this is that before I had the hubris of a philosopher, that I only wanted to write the most analytical and precise philosophy, but, but, but then I realized that you know, each point on the frontier of this of this uh, accessibility uh, nuance trade-off, they they have their own uses, um, and, and they have their own way own ways that, that you can use them. And so, that, that freed me up into, into thinking like, how can I communicate ideas in a way that I think is, is interesting and sophisticated enough, but reach a much more accessible audience? And and the way that we stumbled upon this was was lectures. Uh, and in fact, this wasn't innovative at all. I don't think because I, I myself when I'm just walking around, I listen a lot to the great courses. Mm. Um, and I'm shilling a lot of products already on the podcast to get paid. Uh, and these are lectures recorded by, you know, top professors in the world and, and, and they're super accessible. And that made me realize like m the best undergraduate courses I took back in school, uh, philosophy undergraduate, it's like serious philosophy undergraduate courses, some graduate courses even, a public audience would be very interested in, mm -hmm. into listening to them. Uh, and, so, and so that's how we decided on the forum, and uh, the, the form rather. And then, you know. Well, it reminds you of something Jordan Peterson often talks about, which is that the printing press was created in 1440 and it allowed people to, to write, anyone could write anything and distribute it, which is just a, a yeah. novel concept. 
But now you have, we're living under the printing press for audio and the printing press for video. So scholarly, hard to understand ideas can now be distributed on YouTube and Spotify and people can gain access. Anybody who has the knowledge can gain access to those ideas as well as to distribute them, which is a crazy thing when you compare video and audio to writing and that this is the first time ever in human history where that's possible. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. You know, what this makes me think about is actually almost a return in some way instead of just an innovation because, you know, before, uh, you know, pre-literate societies, they communicated through oral traditions, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's where the epic myths came from and that, you know, the Homeric traditions were passed through, uh, you know, oral traditions, a lot of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition as well. And that was the sort of dominant medium of communication. And it's almost like with the printing press and writing, we went through a phase where the dominant medium was was the written word. Was and, it though? I, I'm uh, curious. I don't know because yeah. did people write and read more than they communicated verbally, even when the printing press went on? Yeah, maybe another way to put it is that the most like sophisticated and eternal ideas. I think I think that's a great great lens to look at it, right? The, the most eternal ideas were all captured in writing. Yeah. Whereas before in the oral tradition, the most eternal ideas were captured captured in sort of the audio format. But now you're you're you're, you're saying it, with the Guggenheim, with, with the printing press did to you know the, the writing, perhaps the audio is is doing to the oral tradition. So so, so that's that's an, that's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah, and also. It's interesting that the people who were most dominant, they did a study, I can't remember, I think Stu Fortier came up with this idea or distributed this idea where it's like the people who were the most alpha in a group of, mm -hmm. of um, hunter-gatherers were not the, the strongest, which was surprising to me. It was the best storytellers. Right. And I thought that was just an interesting insight that speaks to the importance of oral communication and just the ability to express yourself through words. Yeah, and then I think that the next question we should ask is what are the qualities? Like, like if the medium is the message, what, what does the medium of, of the lecture or of, of audio say? And you know, I'm just literally just thinking off, off the top of my head here. But um, I think it's both good and bad that it's a much more accessible um, medium. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, let's, let's start with the most interesting part of that, that sentence, which is why it's bad that it's more accessible, is that I, I feel like how much an idea sits with you and how thoroughly you understand it is directly correlated to how much effort you have to put in to, to understand it. And, you know, I, as you said, I came from a, like a, bath, a math background and uh, part of the, of the mathematical tradition and upbringing mm -hmm. is that you reconstruct the arguments and that that's how you learn it. And so right now when I, when I read philosophy, I do exactly what, what I do when I'm trying to learn the proof to a theorem, which is I literally, uh, I, wrote, I wrote an essay about this, but I literally copy and paste every paragraph and I try to summarize the, the authors. This is only for very specific books that I, that I think are w worth, worth really engaging with. Um, and, and, and that type of engagement, like I, I've often said, it, it's, it's not reading becomes very active, it becomes very, not a painful process, but it, you're exerting a lot of effort, you know, and, 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 so, and, and that really helps you ingrain the ideas in, in, into your mind as well. That's sort of very active, engaged, not too accessible tradition. In fact, I'm going on a tangent here, uh, I, I tend to think that there's a big benefit if you want your ideas to be somewhat eternal to writing in a very obscure way. You know, one benefit is that 
uh, your ideas can be interpreted in, in, a, in, a, in a whole kaleidoscope of ways. And depending on what the, you know, the issue of the day is, people can interpret it in different ways. But the other thing is, you know, I think if people write too clearly, like compare like you know, Tocqueville versus Hegel, Tocqueville, you kind of get what he's saying. So you don't feel like it's you that is sort of sucking the knowledge out of him. But Hegel, oh my God, this guy is just incomprehensible, right? And you, you, you really have to exert your effort in there. And, and, and as a result, I think you feel more attached to the ideas as well. Anyways, that, that, that's a tangent, but that's all to say why I think uh, the accessibility of the, of the audio format can be detracting, is that it gives, you, it gives you the illusion of knowledge, but on the other hand, it's just much more accessible. And even I you know, listen to a lot of audio uh, audio content, I find that worthwhile, even when I have time to do, you know, sitting there and very engaged reading. Um, although I tend to only do the audio for books or authors that I already know, mm. um, or, or, or to do it as a, as a first as a first slice, because you can't really get into a deep idea through audio, I think, for that reason. Yeah, I think part of the reason why your series has been so impactful to me or why the first lecture that I've listened to is so impactful is because you spent a long time going through the ideas and writing about them. And yeah. I think that gives a level of credibility to the lecture and to, it seems like a podcast, but it just, it makes it more profound because you've spent a lot of time with it. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so, so I, I want to talk about the ideas you discuss, at least in the first lecture. Please. And... There is a lot, and it's exciting stuff. And I also love, I want to set the scene for your study of Gerard with your history studying Buddhism as well. So yeah. you spent some time as a Buddhist monk or, or at least studying. Yeah, I, I, I went to a monastery. You went to a monastery. Yeah, How yeah. long did you practice at a monastery, and what did you learn? Yeah, so I, I definitely don't want to exaggerate uh, how ingrained I was in that tradition. So it was like a study abroad program. Gotcha. So it was a summer program by the Grand Yang Yishi. Uh, that's another sponsorship right there. I'm on, <laughs> I'm on three already. Uh, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm really going to I'm really gonna sell them quite hard because... Uh, they have a summer introduction to, to Buddhism course. And what they do is Rangyang Yishi Institute uh, is a partnership between a uh, Nyingma monastery, a Tibetan monastery in, in Nepal, um, with, I, I think it's uh, Kathmandu University. So, so out of that institution, they actually give PhD and master's programs. And what was nice about that summer program is that you have a comp like even the classes. Half of them are ta taught by Tibetan monks, translated, um, but by an, uh, a Western professor, and half of them are taught by uh, you know just, just a regular Western class. And so you, it's a really authentic but gentle introduction mm. to, 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 to 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 what Buddhism, quote unquote, really re re really is. And 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 why I, I want to emphasize that is, you know, the historically. Um, the Buddhism that you and I are, are, are first exposed to, certainly the Buddhism that I was first exposed to in the West, some people have jokingly called it Protestant Buddhism. And the reason is because it was a Buddhism actually manufactured for Europeans, that most of the Buddhists, or, or a lot of the Buddhism you get today in the West, um, was from colonialized nations wanting to market their religion as a replacement for Christianity. So, so, so during that era, you know, Christianity was already being threatened by science. And so Buddhism, you know, coming from a fresh slate on the European market, so to speak, wanted to 
depict itself as in some sense compatible with modern intuitions of reason and science and even liberty and its modern political values. And this is why, you know, certain uh, parts of sutras that were just completely obscure for like 2,000 years, like, you know, the Buddha saying, you know, don't ask me, reason for yourself, that they were all given like very little interpretive uh, significance in, in the Eastern traditions are just given the, the, the greatest weight and be like, hey, see, the Buddha said this, like this totally, uh, 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 you know, a practice of reason. When you get there, you realize that that is very, very far from the story. Um, it very much, at least in its shape, um, takes on the form of a religion. You know, people are doing you know a thousand, uh, or you know, I can't remember what it is, hundred thousand preliminaries. You know, and, and you know, in, in terms of what I learned there, um, I didn't really go go there out of a sort of theoretical curiosity, but but a very deep like existential. Uh, necessity. And, and the reason I think is, you know, I grew up in, in math, sports, and in this really hustler culture, mm. striving, wanting for more. And, and, and at a certain point, uh, that, that, that was just no longer working for me. And it was actively working against me. Because, because I think, and I think Marcus really has said this, like, you know, when we say we want to be ambitious, what we really want is we want to be motivated by other people's opinions of us or something mm -hmm. like that. I, I'm going to butcher this. And so uh, what I didn't realize, this, this whole like Gary Vaynerchuk hustler culture, uh, the, 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 the subtext that was implanted in me by subscribing to it was to care a lot about you know, social prestige and, 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 and recognition and, and, and pride and glory. And, and Buddhism was the counterbalance of that. It tried to, you know, very simply uh, re resolve the ego. And and so I, I went there out of a deep sort of existential necessity that I thought that that was the only thing that, that, that could save me. And so um, in terms of what I learned, I'm, it's really hard to put into words, but I've always been kind of the really ambitious, hustle, striving person. And Buddhism was really the first step into an alternative worldview that, that I didn't even know could exist, or even if I did exist, I easily dismissed before. But now I think there's a lot of legitimacy mm. to this idea of retreat and, and meditation and yeah. What happened to me was I, I was raised in New York, which is very similar to the hustle culture of the world. And what I did was I moved for a year to San Diego, started right. studying yoga, started to learn how to meditate, all this. And I realized that they were two having the hustler New York mentality as well as the take a breath San Diego mentality comes to a great place. You're able to right. come to the middle. And I'm curious if it was similar to you. Uh, it, it wasn't, but but I think it, it won't be for an interesting reason. So so um, you know, w one one way to frame our discussions. Uh, in, in terms of very long sort of intellectual tradition and debate is the tensions between the active and, and, and the contemplative, contemplative life, you know, mm -hmm. Buddhism, yoga, and uh, reading and representing the contemplative and hustling, making money, and representing the, 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 the active life. Yeah. Uh, and, and my uh, probably very unpopular and uncommon intuition is that these two lives are, are, are just fundamentally incompatible. Um, and that is why right now, when I'm trying to build a company, I've been building a fintech startup with, with uh, we can talk about that a bit later on, I do not meditate at all. Like, I, I just find that to be going directly against my, my motivation and all that. And, you know, partly it's because I think company building and commerce industry for me is not that interesting in and of itself. Mm. And so without those egoistic drives, there, there's very little that sort of 
well, not very little. I find, I find it quite interesting, but you know, the, 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 there's not that there's not that much m m motivating me there. Mm. And I actually had a conversation with a friend actually, and, and maybe this is where you're at, where he says, you know, the more I meditate, you know, the more I enjoy commerce. And I, I'm like the opposite. I, I'm like the more I meditate, the more I, I just want to go in the woods and like read. Uh, and we figured out why it's because he actually had a desire for the activity of commerce in and of itself. People are really rare, by the way. Everyone tells you that they like working. Very few people actually do, but I really do believe this guy. And so when you take away those egoistic impulses, a sort of wealth, wellspring of authentic desire for commerce and industry and making money springs forth for him. But, but I think for me, you know, I still like commerce and industry, but I'm much more interested in, in, in philosophy. So when you take away those egoistic impulses, for me, what springs up is a, is a desire to sort of retreat. Um, and this actually ties into some of the ideas that we discussed in the first lecture, as you probably know, which is that Gerard interprets humans as being motivated by two species of desires. One is physical desires, right, the desire for the activity in itself, and the other is metaphysical desire, what the activity says about me, right? And, and examples I gave there is, you know, you can have sex out of a physical desire, and that would be for intimacy or the pleasure, um, or you can have sex because of what it says about you. And, and that's a real psychology, right? People are out there to, to prove certain things. They're not out there to experience things. And um, what they want, really, from, from the one-night stand or, or the friends with benefit is what having a sex with a certain person says about them, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and the same applies in all the different domains of, of, of hu a human endeavor, or so Gerard thinks. Um, so, you know, and, and job and commerce is, is one of them. And, and so that's why, that's why, for me, there's actually quite a bit of tension between these, yeah. these two practices. I would say that one person I feel like is doing it really well, contemplatively and striving, is David Perel. He's, in one sense, I mean, yeah, outside yeah, looking yeah, yeah. in, is like he... He's contemplating ideas. He's writing about it in his newsletters. Yeah, yeah. He's reading a lot, and he's also making money in rite of passage. So, I, yeah, I, what do you think of that? I, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to get David here and have him defend himself. But, 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 but perhaps, perhaps that's a, that's a potentially right reading. I don't know. Yeah, and so when you when you think about those two things being tensions for each other, how do you think your future self is going to look at? what you're doing in commerce right now. Because from studying you and studying your ideas, it seems like you will get into philosophy at some point in the future after you've made money. Like you're gonna spend a lot of more a lot more time on that. And so will that future version how is that future version of your of yourself going to look at you today? Do you believe? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. And maybe another way to ask it is why, um, what why I'm doing commerce then? Uh, why I'm in an in, in industry. And you know, when I was uh, 21, I was just graduating, and I wanted to do three things um, in, in this descending order. I wanted to be a philosophy PhD, I wanted to be a Buddhist monk, and finally, I, I thought I might be interested in, in building a company or, 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 or industry. Um, and uh, th then I met a gentleman by the name of Joe Lonsdale, who uh, sort of convinced me, uh, both with the exact opportunity we're working on, but also with ju which is how he sees the world, that there's a lot to be gained uh, in, in the active life. Uh, and so one way to answer that question is that it's a, it's a matter of, you know, staging mm. um, and staging one's life. And I think there are periods of life that are just much more suited to do certain types of activities than others. I think, you know, contemplation, you know, you, you might, your brain might, might get, uh, get, you know, get, get too old when you're 60 or 70. But, I, but I'm pretty sure I'll be a better philosopher when, when I'm 35 than when I'm 25 now. I have more, more life experiences. In fact, Plato actually in the Republic 
uh, says that the young should not speak, should not study philosophy until they're 30. And, and his advice for the philosopher king, if you look at how he wants to train the philosopher kings, is sort of in and out, in and out, and in and out. And so for me, that was a large part of it. Hmm. But, but another was actually being, so being pulled to, 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 to industry. Um, another part of it is, I think, being pushed away from contemplation. You know, the, the joke that I tell my friends is, I, I, I like contemplation too much to make out of it a career. And when I was looking at grad students and even professors from the top schools, there was something, I don't know, maybe this is, I don't know if it's resentment or what, what do you want to call it, but there, there, was, there was something off about it. I felt like what made my engagement with philosophy so freeing and enjoyable, and keep in mind, both Girard and Buddhism are not the most serious and certainly not the highest growth paths you, 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 should, you should be taking if you're interested in philosophy. Um, and so the only reason that I could, I could engage with them so freely was because I had an identity already set up in, in the world. I was already you know, somewhat tracked in, in, in tech and you know, I was comfortable that even if I did nothing for the last two years of my of, of college, I would still be able to come out and have at least a, a decent paying job. And, you know, another way to look at what I'm trying to do now is having developing both the uh, material and then also the social recognitive resources um, to, 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 to be in the academy, but not of the academy, if and when I do decide to go back. Like, I, I think it'll be I think my relationship with philosophy will be so fraught if my entire livelihood um, and where I am, you know, all my friends are determined by it, then suddenly it will not just be for philosophy itself uh, uh, you know, that, that I'm motivated. And there's all these things and you know, I've got to publish. You know, and it just sounds like a chore. You know? and, and yeah, so, so, so another way to, the question is like, if you like ceteris paribus, enjoy philosophy more, more than commerce, why are you, why are you doing commerce? You know, I think that it's important to do certain things in different stages in life, even if you don't see the reasons immediately right now. Uh, the company we're building, I think, is going to be a, a generational financial company. Uh, I think I'm going to be financially free f f from this, and I think I'm going to be able to gain a sort of a societal recognition. That's going to enable me to engage with, with the academy in a bit more of a freeing way, if and when I do go back. And, uh, and yeah, and, and I ha haven't been proven proven wrong. I, I do enjoy my my day to day and, and building with, with a team that we have. So it's it's been it's been really exciting. Yeah, you also for industry and for what you're building on, it's also have the best domain name I've ever seen. Longterm.com. Yeah. How, how did that? How did you get longterm.com? Yeah, you, know, you get lucky with these domains. You, know, <laughs> you, get, you get lucky with, with these domains. But yeah. yeah. But um, I I wanted to. I wanted to understand from your perspective where you get the time to look into philosophical ideas because it seems like you get a lot of joy from that inherently and you've certainly said that in the past. At what points during the day or week do you devote to philosophical study? Yeah, so I'm, I'm very ruthless with, uh, with, with my time um, and you know, there's uh, you know, start, startup life, you're working like six and often on first year, it was like just seven days a week, right. nonstop, always on. And even when you're not on, you're on. Right? And when you're did you about start? This. And, um, we started the company uh, 2020, mid 2020. It was officially incorporated, sort of late 2020. So it's about mm -hmm. two, two, two years and so or so now. And um, right now, I'm you know six days a week, and but that you have one more day, and then you have evenings, and then you have mornings. Mm -hmm. You have very, very early mornings, right? And so. Uh, 
that, that, that's basically the entirety of my life. Like it's just, I just work and then I just, I have reading groups and I just try to read philosophy. And it, it's, it's odd because I don't have the time or the, or the mind mindset right now to, I think, start new authors or new ideas. It just takes too much time. It requires too much of your effort. So for me, it's mostly just keeping the amber of philosophy alive. Yeah. <laughs> like, like just, <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, but also, uh, further developing some of the initial interests that, that, I, that I developed in my undergrad, mostly around recognition theory mm. uh, and, and, and German idealism. And so, yeah. What, what's recognition theory? Yeah, so, so recognition theory, I, I don't know how the stars aligned on this one, but um, the, the problem I told you about caring too much about what, what people think and, and, and prestige, and really I think probably one of the, 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 the biggest things that, that people are, are really concerned with um, and I, I, I self-diagnosed that um, probably my freshman year, sophomore year, and then all I cared about was to understand, you know, um, or all I cared about was trying to not care about what other people thought about me. And, and so there's these books right now, right? It's like subtle art of not giving a fuck, right? And that's, that's, that's what they're trying to do. Don't, don't care about what people think about you. And it turns out that Columbia, where I went to school, is the global headquarters of uh, recognition theory. And recognition theory, as so far as I was taught, led by these two German philosophers who are good, great mentors and professors of mine, and, and they essentially interpret three lineages of philosophers. One is the the French lineage from Rousseau to Sartre. One is the the German lineage, mostly around Hegel, uh, and one is the Scottish tradition of moral philosophy with uh, with Hume and uh, and Smith. And, so, and, and they identify in all three of these authors as uh, an elevation of a part of human nature that they think is being overlooked by modernity. Mm. And that's the, the social spirited part of, of, of our soul. Um, and, you know, I, I, don't, I don't even want to try to su summarize it, but, but, but it's, it's, it's something like, uh, you know, uh, let, let me put it this way. The, the, if you, you put a gun to my head and you say, like, wh why was that so interesting to you? You know, um, I think it helped me correct the question I was trying to ask. Whereas before I was like, well, how do I stop caring what people thought about me? Mm. And then now they, they were like, well, you can't, right? That's just, that's just what humans are. Mm. We all desire recognition. And the question is, what is the right type of social relationships? And what is the right type of recognition that you should be seeking? What is the right type of you know, self-conception that can be properly recognized, right? This is, in some sense, Hegel's question, the phenomenology. Uh, and so it's, I, I don't have a good answer to that. I, I think I have a better answer than I did before, but I think they're making me ask the, 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 the right question. And so, and so it's that line, this line of thinking that I think I'm most interested uh, in pursuing it and growing further, yeah. Well, what was your answer to that before learning about, and what is it now? Yeah, so, so and, and keep in mind, by the way, the, the way I set this up, um, you can see how easily Girard kind of f fits into this recognition tradition, right? Mm. Mimesis is the fundamental way that we access the, the subjectivity of others, and this is why we, we care almost directly what they think about things, because you know through mimesis we're sort of forced to internalize a lot of the normative values of others. Um, I think the delta between before and now was more on the question front, like I mentioned, like. 
it was before I was just I was just trying to figure out how I could stop caring what people thought about me, right? It was like, it was like I don't know, meditating or just like repeating daily mantras or like doing all this like new age stuff. To just just like how how do I stop caring what people thought about me? And and, and they kind of sort, sort of like switched the question and said, okay, what? But what what is the right type of relationship with others and and type of recognition that you seek? And you know, and, and even though I don't have a I think a really clear cut answer, I I, I think. Um, practically, I, I've, I've uh, developed quite a bit from, from reading this, and I'll, I'll give you the most straightforward one, which is, um, you know, earlier on, I think I, I sought a very general form of recognition. I just want to be mm. conceived of, of, of as cool or successful, broadly speaking. Uh, and, and I realized a lot of my more egoist, egoistic and, and like ludicrously egoistic uh, uh, impulses were due to the fact that I didn't have a much more local and precise sphere of, of recognition. And in, to, to put this more concretely, um, I realized that a necessary condition, and this, is, this actually goes to my academy point that I was speaking with before, a necessary condition of me turning from away from computer science, mathematics, and, and entrepreneurship to study philosophy properly for, for two years at the end of my college career um, is to find a group of people that recognized and validated that pursuit. Hmm. Um, because for me, right, the success, the, the, the societal success, what, what, what was the former? Um, but, but, but a primary reason that I wanted that was because I didn't have an intimate circle of friends that, that affirmed a much more sort of uh, authentic and inbuilt sort of set of desires. And so I essentially moved in with two, two of my best friends um, for the last parts of my college career, and we were all sort of philosophy nerds. And, and one of the friends were the ones was the one who introduced, introduced me to David. Um, and yeah, and, and you just feel you just feel like you're going to be okay, and then you feel very validated in your weird little sort of hobby or, or, or thing that you're interested in. Insofar as you find you know even just one person um, that is able to recognize you for, for your weird weird. Uh, or interest. Anyways, I, I'm really trivializing recognition theory. It, it's, not, it's not like this like self-help tool, but I primarily pursued it for soteriological reasons, like i.e. for the salvation, uh, you know, if you will, of, of my soul. And, and so it, uh, it, it continues to fascinate me because of that. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that's really well put. The, the piece that stuck out to me in that was what does the modern world see or value that won't be valued in the future or wasn't valued in the past, right? What does modernity get wrong? And I think that's a fundamental question of Gerard. And it's not something we often stop and think about because we're in this filter bubble of, oh, it's cool to do X and Y behavior. And you saw this during COVID and you saw this, you yeah. know, this happens all the time when culture changes. It's like there's a acceptable behavior of what people can and can't say. Yeah. Why I think podcasting is such an important medium is because it gives more people a voice. But to bring us back, what does modernity get wrong from your estimation? Wow. This is, uh, you know, I'm a, uh, lecture six talks, talks about this is the triumph of, of modernity. Um, and I'll, I'll give you Gerard's answer, right? Because I, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm still too young to have my own opinions. And I really do mean that seriously. Like, uh, you know, I, I can't make political decisions. Like, uh, I just don't know. I, I haven't read enough. I haven't thought enough about these things. So I'll, I'll give you Gerard's answer, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. But on that point, yeah. not to take us down a different rabbit hole, why do people believe that age is connected to the 
acceptance of their ideas. There are some 18-year-olds who have been through more in life than some 50-year-olds. And there are some 50-year-olds who are experiencing life as an 18-year-old. Right. So so that's a good point. I, I wasn't saying that the mere fact that I was 24 means that I shouldn't hold any opinions. It's that I just haven't had given enough time to think a lot about these important topics yet. Fair. And this is... Yeah, and this, this is kind of like the intellectual tradition that I was brought up in, which is the, the interpretive tradition that you spend, some people spend the entirety of their careers trying to figure out like the most charitable way of reading Hegel or Rousseau or Nietzsche. Uh, and, and, uh, and so even everything I shared with in the lectures, like mo I, I find all of them directionally interesting and some to be correct, but, but most of Gerard's ideas I, I probably disagree with. Obviously the most important one being Christianity. And we can talk about that, but let me answer you the modernity thing first. Um, Gerard's answer for what people in, what modernity gets wrong is that uh, modernity The problems, the perversions of modernity all come from hypocrisy. That is, the problems, the pathologies of modernity come from us having the right ideals, but not being able to live up to them or acting directly against them in the name of them. Hmm. So let, let me give you an example. The example that Gerard gives is about protecting victims. So Gerard has this theory about the, the, the peaceful, the, that what brings peace in real turmoil is singling out an innocent victim, blaming all of society's problems on them, and then sacrificing them, you know, either expelling them or, in many instances, killing them. And, and what brings peace in this instance is catharsis. Uh, and Gerard thinks that modernity, because of the Christian revelation, Christ was the ultimate victim, of course, gained an intuition um, that this is a tendency that all humans have. Mm. And so we've tried to correct against it. And, and you see this everywhere, right? Like... Um, This is, I think, behind the, 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 the right sort of protest of the sort of victim-obsessed culture. But, you know, even in movies, like, everyone's rooting for the little guy. And that, that's not a common, that's not, like, a standard human intuition, by the way. Like, like I, I, I think in pagan societies, they'd be like, of course I'm rooting for Zeus. Like, of course I'm rooting for the powerful. This, this intuition to root for the little guy, to root for the victim, is not a standard, I think, human uh, in intuition. And, you know, another great example here is, like, what, you know, uh, this is one that Gerard gives is, you know, prestige uh, between nations. A lot of the times is like how much you can help other nations, mm. right? And, and it's still grandiose and it's still sort of narcissistic. But the domain that you have to compete on is like helping developing nations or, or something like that. And Gerard thinks that all of this, all of this corrective force um, is because of Christianity. That it helped us realize that human societies have a natural tendency to persecute victims. Um, now, where society goes wrong, Gerard thinks, is we sort of le only learn the shell of that lesson, but, but not its deeper core. Or to put it another way, we haven't really renounced, um, really renounced the persecution of victims. Simply, what has switched is who we think it's acceptable to persecute. Mm. Every uh, uh, sort of canonical victim in, in Western society today is off the table for, for persecution. Women, minorities, uh, you know, queer, uh, 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 you know, people with disabilities, right? It's completely unacceptable to persecute them. But, but who do we have, who do we feel, if not even uh, uh, um, a license to persecute, but necessity to persecute? Mm. Privilege, right. right? Male privilege, white privilege, 
ableist privilege. Mm. Um, and so what Gerard thinks is that the, the problem of modernity's pathologies is that we're having the right ideals in mind. We're just failing up to living we're failing to live up to them, but even more perversely, we're failing to live up to them in a way that directly goes against them while championing them. Mm. And he reminds us, you know, this is not just about, you know, the culture wars today. If you look at the Soviet Union and, and all the terrors uh, that were done in the name of the victimized proletariat, he, he, he wants to remind you how bad this sort of protecting the victim and how, how out of control it can get and how much it can actually hurt victims who are actually innocent. So that's one, uh, one example of, of, of the pathologies of modernity. Um, and another, another example that I think your, your listeners will be very interested in, um, because I think you, you talk a lot about business and entrepreneurship, is actually the idea of innovation. Hmm. Um, Gerard ha happens to think that you know, innovation and imitation are extremely interconnected. Um, an example that, that one can give is, you know, uh, we, we think of Einstein's, you know, general completely innovative, right? Completely new. Mm. But of course, a lot of it was built on, you know, classic, classical uh, physics. And, and he had to be fully immersed in classical physics to really, really study that. Now, on the converse, uh, to, to really come up with that, that innovation, on the converse, we think of someone uh, like Alibaba, right? Like... Uh, as, as, uh, as a copycat, as a derivative. But the amount of understanding it takes to uh, understand fully a business model and apply it in a new, new scenario, that involves you know, innovation. Mm -hmm. And so you know, innovation cannot, um, uh, yeah, so, 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 so it, 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 you, 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 Gerard's point is that you can't innovate out of a vacuum. And I think what his like claim of modernity's hypocrisy here is going to be that we are conforming to innovation. That what we're really doing when we're saying we're being innovative is we're conforming and are allying ourselves to the ideas that appear innovative in the time, which are actually extremely derivative. And so in business, this is going to be you know, AI or, or blockchain, NFT, mm -hmm. right? How many people are sort of adding on to their startup, which have nothing to do with that or should have nothing to do with that just because that's what's considered innovative. So we're conforming to an to a idea of, of, of contrarianism. And, uh, you know, th this applies to the, the, a lot of the work that, that, that I'm doing right now. I try to be as, as less innovative as possible. Mm. Like, I, I, tr I try to not innovate. Like, all I'm, all I'm trying to do is to understand what has been done before, why it has worked, and whether we should keep it, and only, if absolutely necessary, do something new. Yeah. I, I really don't like innovation. You know, I, 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 I want to do what, what, what's been done before, understand what's been done, and then make it better. Um, another example that I'll, I'll, I'll give you that I think is interesting is that, you know, Gerard says, why are, uh, you know, th why is there so much progress in, in science and technology uh, and commerce and business? Um, in the modern West in the past two centuries, but, but not, at least from an outsider's perspective, so much in, in art, for example. It's because that there are forces in business that, that, that keep you, that, that, that make you imitative, that force you to imitate it, comp comparative forces. And paradoxically, these forces that force you to imitate, to really understand what your competitors are doing and apply that and, and into your own, that is the innovative force. Mm. Whereas in art... Where, where there's no forcing mechanism, everyone is just trying to be imitate, uh, innovative, what you get, right, is this like increasingly nihilistic set of, 
uh, like moving away from each other, right? That, that just got more and more ridiculous. This is his, this is his opinion. Um, and the last thing I'll say here is, you know, I just, you know, clearly you need to shut me up. <laughs> um, Keep going. Uh, the last thing I'll say here is, uh, I found this. I found this very humorous in the academy. Uh, I did my first graduate seminar, and you know, the, the teacher, the professor, great, great mentor, I respect him greatly. Said, you know, the, the purpose of the, the essay, uh, the final essay in the semester, is for you to write something original, to contribute to scholarly research. And I thought about that for a while. I'm like, why is it to write something original? Like, I, I get it, right? Like, you don't want us to copy, but, but that, and I, by the way, I think that is a lot of the guiding force of the academy these days, to say something that no one else has said, for, for a large reason, part that, that, that no one else has said it. Just given my very, again, still very rudimentary understanding of, of, the, of the history of philosophy and the history of the social conditions of doing philosophy, that was nev never a motivating factor, uh, or, or certainly not the primary motivating factor of philosophy. In fact, if you look at something like the Christian tradition, they always tried to argue why what they were saying was not innovative. They were always trying to say, look, what I'm saying here, the Bible literally says this. In fact, in the Tibetan tradition, there is a, uh, uh, there is a tradition called the treasure uh, finders. I, I, I'm going to butcher the name. But, and and the, idea, the idea is that um, the Buddha has hidden scrolls in, in, in different uh, parts of, of the world that are meant to be found in a certain time, mm -hmm. that uh, there's a historical di dimension to the Buddha's revelation. And now, if you ask me, and if you ask non-Buddhist atheists what, what's going on, is obviously they're, this is, the, the Buddha didn't hide scrolls. They're writing it, and, and then they're saying they're part of this. I don't hold this position strongly, but that's what an atheist would think. But, but I find the intuition very interesting, right? Because they are so conformist that they're not even saying what the Catholics are saying, right? Mm. That this is in the Bible. They're saying this is literally the word of the Buddha. Mm. Like I'm literally not adding anything beyond just uncovering. So do you see how drastic of a shift that, that we've gone through from uh, an intellectual culture that goes literally from like, I don't want to say anything new. I, I just want to articulate what, what has been said before in, in a maybe slightly more apparent way, uh, more relevant way to one where like, oh, like you, you got you got to like revolutionize everything. Like, uh, and, and I think there's a type of sterility uh, that comes with that. In fact, the last thing I'll say on this point, and I promise I'll shut up, is uh, innovation, I think before the 18th century was, was a terrible word. Like you would damn someone as an innovator. And, and Hobbes, I think in the Levi Leviathan did say you know, that, that innovator, this innovator. Um, and it was synonymous with heresy. Yeah. And so, so it's only in, in modernity that, that innovation is. is, is. And, and so anyways, to tie back to your question of what modernity gets wrong, uh, I, I think, you know, I, I don't even know if innovation is a, is a, is a good ideal, but um, modernity, I think, is conforming to the archetype of, of innovation and, and doing something different. Um, and, and as a result, dooms itself to, 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 to sort of create trivial, trivial artifacts and this is, again, this is the same form as the protecting the victim, right? You say you're going to protect the victim, but the way you do that is actually persecuting new victims. Mm. How then, the question becomes, how did innovation become something that was good? At what point did we say, okay, innovation is something where we admire and we appreciate? Like, how, how do we get here? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't know, and that's probably a PhD topic on itself. But one of my really good friends, um, I think, is, is studying – this is my guess, right? Got gun to my head. Mm-hmm. One of my good friends is studying the change of society's belief. One of my good friends was studying uh, how, when, and why – uh, culture has changed their orientation to the future, mm. right? Um, f- I mean, for most of society, I, I would wager, um, th- it operated on uh, a very different eschatology that we have now. What is eschatology? Uh, eschatology is the study of the end of the world or, or the study of, of the trajectory of history. We'll get there. It, we'll, we'll get there, yeah. And... Um, We'll get there in both senses of the word. And, and uh, right now, it's a natural, and I think it's a fundamentally American intuition, right? Progress. You know, people want to be better. You know, and Tocqueville actually had something very interesting to say to this, is, is that, you know, Americans are all about progress. And, but when you ask whether they're progressing, they're like, oh, you know, my bench press, five, five more pounds. It becomes very trivial, whereas the aristocratic French... Um, they, they didn't claim to be always moving, but when they moved, they actually did, did things that were great. And anyway, that, that's, that's a completely different topic. But um, one thing, you know, if you look at society today where most of us are, are thinking, uh, and this maybe has changed in the past like 10 years, but I think for the past century or maybe the two or three centuries, the future is going get, to get better, right? Yes. And, and we have this intuition that through technology, through science, that you know, humanity is just going to go up. That... I, I think was probably the uncommon sort of way to view history. You know, and, and the best counterexamples would be um, uh, the Confucians, right? Hui Fu Zhou They want to bring back the um, the rituals of the Zhou, and they think that there's a decline. You can you can kind of read Christianity this way, right? Coming from the Eden and, and descending into um, for Buddhism, it was it was uh, you know, largely to put it very bluntly cyclical, and to answer your question, the reason, perhaps a reason why innovation uh, became a good thing is because of the fundamental orientation to history. Because if your idea is that history is on a downward trajectory, then certainly change is bad. Because more change is, is going to make us go further down. Mm-hmm. We, we should just push the brakes on history. The best thing we can do is reactionary movements and go back to history. But if we can't, we should just put a brake on history. Now, if you think that history is always going to get better and better with change, then suddenly change and innovation becomes good. Yeah. And so I think it's that fundamental change about the orientation of history. This is my, again, gun to my head, yeah. I guess, is what made innovation took upon a positive connotation. And the question is, well, what made us change that view in history? I don't know, but I suspect it has something to do with, with capitalism and mm. technological advancement and science and all that. Yeah, well, it certainly seems as if we're moving faster today in the past 10 years than we were for 10 years in 1840 to 1850. And so if things are moving and moving and moving, then you want to believe you're moving in a right direction. Yeah, It's certainly yeah. helpful to think that. Yeah, or, or the point I was trying to make was was similar to what you're saying, but but slightly different sequence, which is if you think that things are going to go well, change is good. Mm. Ch- change is, gonna, change is, is, is pushing history forward. If you think you think that things are going to get worse and worse and worse, change is bad because what we have right now—that's the best we're going to get. 
what we had yesterday was better than today. We probably can't go back. So let's just halt change. Let's not innovate. Innovation is synonymous with heresy. Yeah. I, I love also what you said um, about imitation before, because it reminds me in, in order to innovate, you first need to imitate. And it reminds me of this whole series you did, which is about imitating the ideas of Gerard and really embodying them in your being so that you can put them out. Yeah, and I think that's a great example. If you, re if you really listen to that series, and th this goes uh, with, with all of the um, uh, intellectual, I'm sorry, int like intellectual history slash continental historical philosophy tradition mm -hmm. that, 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 I, that I sort of uh, was trained in, they say that they're interpreters, but often they're almost bringing forth original ideas out, out of these thinkers mm. themselves. Um, the ideas that they're able to pull out of Rousseau and out of Hegel. Um, there, there's this common uh, thing that people say about hermeneutics is that Rousseau might not be the best interpreter of Rousseau, mm. or Nagarjuna might not be the best interpreter of Nagarjuna. And why is that? The idea is that having the historical distance of seeing how ideas play out you might be able to understand the contours and the implications of an author's ideas even perhaps better than they themselves could. And so as a result, when you're interpreting, when you're merely imitating these philosophers, um, if you read these books, a lot of the times they're almost as good as developing their own ideas perhaps through Rousseau or, or, or through Hegel. Mm. And bringing back to these lecture series, if you read the lectures and you read Girard, it, you're, you're gonna see an affinity but, but there are certain concepts that you're, you're not going to be able to find at all, like physical metaphysical desire, Gerard's theodicy in lecture three. Um, and so the interpretive work of mere imitation, I think, is, is, is incredibly innovative. Mm. Whereas, again, I, I point to the th think about like the, the classical, like, like re rebellious poets you have in, in college. Right. They're just interested in, in writing about you know, the, the latest trend of the day, be it you know, equality or protecting the proletariat or, or gender struggles. And all their things are very derivative, right? But, but they claim to have this radical break with the past. They, but, but their ideas are really derivative because they're conforming to an idea of innovation. Huh. Whereas uh, the tradition that I think I, I, I was taught in, this, this very imitative, this very interpretive, you know, where we're, we're only trying to develop the ideas that Hegel had, I think is much more innovative mm. uh, and much more interesting and, and actually brings forth more new and meaningfully new ideas than this sort of other like rebellious tradition, if you will. Hmm. So a couple of questions. One, why Gerard? Why spend all this time? Why spend all this effort on doing this lecture series for him? And, and why did the ideas grip you at such a deep level? And two, why has Gerard become something cool? Why do people, why is that Silicon Valley, why is Silicon Valley so interested in Gerard as well? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think the most obvious answer to both questions is Peter Thiel. Mm. Um, but that's not the, I think that's the beginning of an answer. That's not, we're probably giving Thiel too much credit if that's also the end of the answer. Um, I certainly um, got into Girard because I was mediated by Thiel, right? And this is the, this is the Girardian phenomenon par excellence. You see a model that you want to be like, and then you want to be, you want to gain, you obtain the object the model is associated with. However, that is certainly not the reason why I stayed in, uh, in Girard. Um, it's because I, I felt like his diagnosis of my problems um, and, and the sort of the mimetic world that we live in is, is more accurate. Um, and, and by the way, I, I think this is a, 
underdeveloped, I think, idea that the reason that people get into things and the reason that people stay into things are, are often rarely the same, right? People usually get into working out when impressing girls and, 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 you know, and Instagram and some say for health, some say for other reasons, some switch to powerlifting. Um, and, and there are even great philosophers, I can't remember the name, but who I think they entered into philosophy uh, because a girl that they liked said, you know, I think you'd do better if you read a bit more, uh, more uh, Sartre or something like that. And he said, you know, if you told me that I'd look better wearing a crop top, I'd be wearing a crop top. And so uh, that's, that's the first thing I'll, I'll say. Um, and, and that's mostly to comfort people who, who got into to certain ideas out of like not, not right reasons or, you know, if you think there are not right reasons. Um, I think that the, the more interesting question is why is Silicon Valley uh, got into Gerard and why is it stuck? You know, I, again, the first answer I think is Teal. I, I think that's why people get into them. And, and that's not a diss on, on Gerard, right? In fact, it, if anything, it's like uh, proving out of his theory that people who have no idea what Gerard's talking about is still talking about Gerard all the time because of the association with Peter. Um, but I think fundamentally the reason that um, people in the Valley resonate with Gerard is because Gerard describes the psychology of pride. So these two desires that we discuss, physical desire, desire for the activity itself, metaphysical desire, desire for what the activity says about us, metaphysical desire is a desire to exist in great measure. In Gerard's analysis, he commonly uses world historic conquerors like the Napoleons and the Achilles as his models, or he uses the conquerors of the mind, right? The, the Halderlins, Goethe, and what Gerard is really good at capturing, and this is also his limitation, I think is the psychology of the extremely proud and ambitious person. The person who's on the verge, I think, of a delusion even. Um, and, and this is a weakness of his theories because I, I don't think, I think the way that he conceives his being, the thing that metaphysical desire is after to exist in great measure, I, I, I actually don't think that's the only way that we can conceive uh, the different ways to be and the way we can gain recognition. And that's part of the project that I want to pursue is to understand what are the different ways. And th this is why I, I'm, I'm going through Hegel's phenomenology right now. Uh, set that aside, there's another part of the, you know, I, I owe you a second part of, of the answer, which is why, why are Silicon Valley people prideful? Like, wh wh why is that the case, right? So the first part of the argument is that Gerard describes psychology of pride. The second question is, why are they prideful? Um, I think to be an entrepreneur, um, or, and, and for all world historic uh, activity, um, or not even world historic, just, just very difficult things, you need to be somewhat delusional, mm. right? Because it, it's about looking around in your world right now and saying, this is clearly not what I am. You're, right now, you're, you're 150, you're scrawny, you want to look like Arnold. Or, you know, you have no funding, no one, but, but you, you're like Jack Ma, you just believe that, that, that you're going to build a decabillion dollar company. That almost always comes from delusion. And that delusion is almost always sustained by pride and, and, and a sort of narcissism. Uh, and this is Gerard's view, of course. And um, now, obviously, that's not to say that delusion and pride are necessary conditions for worldly success. But I think in many ways they are, uh, I'm sorry, they're not sufficient conditions, but I think in many ways they are sort of necessary conditions. Mm -hmm. And even in, in philosophy, the people who, who've, really revolutionized the field. I'm thinking about Adorno or, or Nietzsche. These guys were egomaniacs. Like, they were just nuts. Um, you know, Nietzsche, Nietzsche thinking that he, you know, he's going to complete philosophy in, in, in some way, and Hegel, borderline delusional, thinking that he's, in some sense, bring forth God with his, with, 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 with his work. Um, so 
Um, I was going to say one more thing. Oh, this also uh, is why I think there's a tension between action and contemplation. Mm -hmm. If contemplation is about seeking truth, action, I think you need to maintain sorts of delusions. And so there's, there's actually another activity um, that I think is very incompatible to, to contemplation. That's working out. Mm. Because for me, working out is all about being motivated by by future ideal you want to you know, you know strive towards and exaggerating that. But um, so I hope that that answers your question. That, that, that I think that uh, yeah, yeah. This is something that I've I've thought a lot about. That the people we admire most in our society are sometimes and often the most broken. Not always, but if you look at somebody like Tiger Woods and you say, "Wow, like." This is an amazing golfer. He's incredible. I can't believe he achieved these feats. If you look at his personal life, you see what a what brokenness led to that truth and reality coming to be. Yeah, or even Elon getting bullied. Right. Right. And so how do we reconcile this that the people we look up to the most are often the most broken people? Yeah, and you know, and Kanye had it had it best when he said the people highest up have the lowest self-esteem or something yeah. like that, right? And uh, first of all, I don't think that's the necessary path. In fact, my, my bet is that that's not the necessary path. And I think, um, I think there's a, all the, there's another arena of success that that comes from just doing what you love. Hmm. But that that path you you you, I think you need to, I think you need to let go your desire for success itself. Like you just got to focus on what you love. And then if success comes great, success doesn't come, you're still fine with it. I think that's a potential path. Um, and you do see philosophers like this, who's, uh, I think I think it was Spinoza who was like this, who who just, you know, uh, renounced the, the world. He got professorships he didn't want to take. He was just interested in doing the thing, man. Um, Augustine was actually kind of like this. Augustine uh, famously... His conversion to to, uh, uh, to to Christianity was also conversion to philosophy. He was hyper tracked, um, essentially a very successful like law professor equivalent, and then he he just just left into to a farm. Mm. Uh, Wittgenstein gave up one of the biggest fortunes in in, in, in Austria actually um, to, to do do philosophy. And after he achieved great success as a I think Cambridge professor uh, and revolutionized the field. He, 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 I think he just, he just went away uh, like off, off alone. So, so I, I think that there's this other path, but then there are clearly the majority of people who are successful, I, I think are, are motivated by, but by their demons. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what Gerard has to say as well. Like the strongest drive in the human repertoire is metaphysical desire. And what is metaphysical desire? It's a, a profound lack. It's a profound shame mm-hmm. of us wanting to exist in great measure, but not living up to that standard. And that is the force that just keeps people going and going and going and going. And, and you see this, right? A lot of venture capitalists, they say they want to fund people with chips on their shoulders. They want to fund people who are happy and content. They want to fund people who are like, if this doesn't work, like, I'm worthless. I, I'm nothing, you know? And so, uh, you know, what do we do with that? I, I don't know. Like, I, 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 okay, let me put it this way. I think as a society, it's much harder to figure out what we do with that. Because it seems like that there's a trade-off there. If you want everyone to be happy, there's probably not going to be a lot of production, innovation, progress. Is that true if, or is that a fallacy? I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. This is also one of the things I'm most interested in, in studying, which is uh, the idea of a theodicy. Um, what are the origins of evil, right? And this is, in fact, by the way, this is uh, sort of Rousseau's answer in the second discourse. He's trying to figure out what the origins of inequality are. And, and he, long story short, um, attributed to a drive called amor prop, which is uh, you know, essentially the concern for the self-esteem of 
you know, and, and so it's this very relativistic drive that pushes, uh, I think he, he said something like, all of our great philosophers, our, our great industrialists, and, but also our criminals and, and, and you know, sort of a, the modern equivalent of the school shooter today, they're all motivated by this drive. And so from a societal perspective, I think it's very, very difficult what we ought to do. Do we, do we sort of, um, do, do, like even if we could, I, I don't even know if that's possible, but even if we could damper down this drive, do we want to? And in fact, I wrote a manuscript uh, that, that was discussing the, the uh, connections between Gerard and Buddhism. And this was the problem that, that was stuck upon the most, which is like, it seems if we get rid of the, these drives, like if the world truly is motivated by suffering, if the world is truly motivated by metaphysical desire, if we get rid of that, like the world, uh, you know, the, the fundamental forces that seem to be pushing human society forward are, is going to break down as well. So, so from a societal perspective, I, I think that's the most... Uh, that's, I think, that one of the really interesting questions for me, um, and I don't know if I have a good answer. From the individual perspective, I think it's an easy, rational decision to make, but, but it's a hard one to move to. Mm. Like, like, I think, that, and this is the, the, the path that I'm trying to move towards, is to, is to only do things I like just for their own sake, mm. to develop a cognitive community around me that's very local and limited, that, that I'm sufficiently nourished by, and not care too much uh, you know, uh, uh, about glory and, and, and things like that. Um, but, but it's very hard to, to, to switch to that. Like, mm -hmm. like, even if you know that that's the good thing to, to, to shift to. Like, for me, like, I, I think I've met enough, like, hyper-successful people who are miserable. I'm just like, th this is not worth it. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Well, one of the things about the world being open is that you can see everyone. And you were talking about this with Jim O'Shaughnessy, which is that the idea of, like, a Chinese farmer seeing Elon Musk or seeing uh, a Chinese guy his same age who's he's a billionaire who's a billionaire he's gonna look at that and be like what what's wrong with me and our our focus groups have gotten so wide that it creates some level of feeling of like i'm not enough because you can see every single person whereas when things were in groups of more local more local you didn't have that so that's a is that a challenge of modernity that gerard sees and is and asks like What's going on here? Is this a positive thing? The fact that we can see everyone because we inherently think, oh, it's great that we can see everyone, but there are a lot of challenges that come with that. Yeah, so that, he, he does, but not directly in the way that you framed it, um, but he does. Also, I, how are we doing on time? We're good. We're, we're good? I got it. Cool. I, um, so I, I need to bounce at, at six sharp. But we're 5.30, yeah. we're good. I, cool. I got my eye uh, on it. Awesome. Um, so Gerard does touch upon this question that, that you say, not, not in the exact terms of uh, social media, sort of making it available to, to everyone, mm. but you know, th there's two conditions essentially to be, made, to, to be mediated by someone. And to be mediated means you know, um, to be inspired by their desire or you know, for their desire to contagiously uh, to rub off of you mm. uh, and to be potentially jealous or, or envious. Um, one condition is exposure and the second one is equality. And the first idea is very easy, right? If I'm not exposed to you, you're in that village over there, and, and I'm like, there's just no way, because fundamentally, I just don't even know your, what your desires are when, when you have. And so, and then the equality part is really interesting, and what Gerard focused on in modernity, his idea is that, you know, equality, he fundamentally thinks it is an ultimate good, and it's an ultimate good that Christianity brought about, but it has devastating worldly consequences hmm. because, um, he thinks that desires 
and, and emotions like envy traffic much more readily upon equals. And you know, the, the, the simple example that I give people is if you're a freshman and you see a freshman land a successful internship, you're like, fuck, like, well, you know, what, what's going wrong? But if there's some difference between you, you, you and them, right? They have a rich father, you're like, oh. They have, I don't know, they, they, they were, uh, they're a sophomore, right? Even a slight difference than that. Or, or, for example, right, like my friends who are, you know, the billionaires that I'm with, I'm not jealous of them at all. They're 40, they're 35, you know. I got time. Yeah, 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 something like that. But the other 24-year-olds running a company, like, I'm like, oh, you know, that's, that's a bit too close to comfort. You, you see what I'm trying to say? Yes. So this fundamental idea that we're all equals, and I think this is... Uh, I, I think it does tend to play out this way. And we, we tell children, or at least um, many Americans tell children these days, you can be whatever you want, right? Or we want access for all. What is access deserving for one? Access must be for all. Mm. Well, Gerard thinks that this is ultimately good. He thinks that this is actually part of the catalyst that, that will bring about apocalypse. That there's fundamentally no more barriers, both spatial temporal barriers like we talked about the village and, and no communication and now instagram just see everything but also spiritual barriers now we are all the same and we think that we all deserve what others around us have which mm -hmm. obviously implies that we that, that if we don't have what others have we ought to be envious you know, or, or, or you know so so yeah does that answer your question absolutely so let's bridge the gap between how is that leading to the end of the world and how does Gerard see the end of the world coming to be? Yeah, so, so um, uh, the, 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 the picture of, of the end of the world, and we're going to do a whole lecture on this, is like, like lecture seven called The One Who Withholds. Um, the story kind of goes something like this. Are tools to contain violence as well as to release violence have melted away? Right. And, and we've touched upon this in this discussion already. Our tools to contain violence, um, Gerard thinks, is difference. Right? For example, caste systems, gender norms, no matter how oppressive. And Gerard does think that these are oppressive, and it's ultimately good that we're alleviated from them. Now, desires sort of readily traffic amongst all people, and we're all inspired to compete after the very similar objects. And by the way, for, for anyone I think who has traveled significantly, no one is not shocked about how homogenous the world has become. Hmm. Like even when I was in Nepal in the monastery, I was st staying at home with, with, a, with a foster family, and, and these were like you know, uh, like local people. Hmm. Their son was sent to the, like a prestigious American Canadian university, had very similar political opinions. Like how homogenous the world has become is really, I think, underrated. Um, so that those were our tools to contain violence, essentially social difference. And Gerard thinks that they've dissolved. Now, our tools to uh, release violence, Gerard thinks, is also dissolved. Scapegoating. This idea of blaming victims, we can no longer do it. Mm. Now, now you're like, well, that, that must be a good thing. Now we can see, you know, for example, Oedipus, oh, you, you know, have sex with your mom, you killed your dad, the plague is, is blamed on you, you're out the door. That will incite nothing but laughter these days, right? If you were trying to blame COVID mm. on, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop or something like that, right? And however... Gerard thinks that when we become more sober, when we become more truthful, and here we see the perennial theme of, the, uh, of, of a, you know, worldly success and truth coming into tension again, we don't renounce scapegoating. What we do is we have to come up with more and more plausible stories of scapegoating. Mm. But that means we now need to persecute 
a wider and wider arena of people. The example he gives are terrifying, and those are the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century, right? Before, in, in ancient Greece, you, you could say, so the idea goes, Oedipus, one person to blame, and, and in that sort of mythical, metaphysical universe, that's understandable. You know, one person, he could totally cause a plague. But in Weimar Republic, an entire race had to be blamed. And in the Soviet Union, an entire class had to be blamed. Okay, I got chills. I got to stop yeah, you real quick. Biology has this idea where the entire cloud is going to burst. And when the cloud bursts, everyone's text message, Instagram DMs, all of it's going to be public for people to see. And I can't help but think about that comparison. If the entire cloud bursts and everyone could see everything, the entire world gets blamed for everything in some respect in that, that scenario. Yeah, yeah, may, may, maybe maybe we'll, we'll come back to that, but let me just continue yeah, my story. Yeah. I think that's an interesting thought. Yeah. And so, so the idea is, you know, our tools to contain violence, which is creating social difference, now it's seen as oppressive. We, we can't literally have no social differences. Um, the the uh, our tools to resolve the violence that is built up is also gone. Yeah. Right? We, we can't scapegoat, or, or even if it's not gone, we don't want to use it because now we have to blame just so so many people. Right? An entire race has to be blamed. But right now, it's like the, the white males. Right? An entire sort of racial gender identity has to be blamed for for the problems in society. And um, you know, the question is, why haven't we gone bust yet? Mm -hmm. And the more interesting question is, like, why has society been the most peaceful it's probably been since? you know, ever, since World War II, at least. Yeah. And Gerard's point is don't confuse the lack of actuality for violence for the lack of the potential for violence. Mm. And why the last lecture is named, you know, the one who withholds is because that's the meaning of the word catachon. And that's a uh, theological concept, uh, I think only, only mentioned a few times in the Bible, about the entity or the thing that withholds the apocalypse. The existence of the thing prevents apocalypse from, from happening. And there's been a long intellectual traditions and debates about what that thing actually is. People, scholars disagree. Um, and my reading of Gerard, and this is not a, a canonical reading of Gerard by any means, is that there are three institutions that are the catachons of modernity. It's capitalism, law, and then war. I'll, I'll just touch very, very briefly on how all of them sort of prevent apocalypse. Capitalism, and I think we already discussed this, and you know, everything is kind of rounding out in our conversation. Um, it, it doesn't release violence in the way that uh, the scapegoat mechanism does, but it does channel it, and it channels it productively. What we talked about, right, this desire for glory, like how, how the highest people have the lowest self-esteem, mm. through their desires, uh, th through capitalism, their desires for glory, and for social recognition, what would have to been satisfied by raising an army to, to you know, conquer another nation or, or you know, raising a legion to, to you know, attack or, and defend Rome from Gaul is now satisfied by people making products and services for each other. Or creating and, ICOs. Or creating ICOs, exactly. <laughs> and um, Gerard had this one line. He says, it's of little wonder that as soon as warriors went out of style, the European aristocracy soon readily found itself into business. Mm. And I can't help but think about, um, I, 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 I think it was the Rothschild, uh, like there were, there were essentially like two, no, no, I, I think it was like Napoleon. Or, uh, essentially there were two descendants of two great generals, one of them being Napoleon, and the descendants are now like quant traders going, out against, going against each other. 
you know, and so so I think we the, find the, new the, arenas. To, yeah, yeah. To explore and Gerard, right? This is in, in many ways he's starting to sound like a, if not a Marxist, but someone who's critical of capital. Hmm. That that capitalism is perverse because it's motivated by, by these perverse desires, and in some sense, it's a critique of capital, but it's also a deep praise. Right, like what a marvel it is that this drive for hurting others, for elevating oneself up top, we've now sort of psyoped these great men, so to speak, to build services and kowtow and build software for other people, yeah. to serve other people. What a great miracle that is. <laughs> and so uh, that sort of capitalism and, and law, it gets, it, law is actually super interesting. Um, but the long story short is capitalism only works when, when there's law to, 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 to support it, mm. but the prestige of law is essentially breaking because the prestige of reason is, is sort of breaking. Um, and, and then the final institution that sort of pre prevents us from going to the apocalypse, Gerard thinks, is, is essentially war. Um, and, you know, what, what surprises most people is uh, war was almost like a sport. Uh, I think in the 17th and 18th century, they were called the gentlemen's wars. And they were almost like, I mean, they were almost exactly like sports leagues. Yeah. You would raise an arm, and, and, and war would be what an aristocrat just does. Like, like you, you, it's just like an NBA. You know, you, you go fight for a few years, and then you just do something else, like a rite of passage. And you know, the story that always gets me is there are warring seasons, and so like when you when you need to summer, when you need to winter. You just go back. People just go back, go back home. Like, oh, it's the winter now. Let, let, let's go back. Let, let's stop fighting here. And many times they would go back to their home country through enemy territory and they and the enemies would grant them passage. Oh, my God. Because it was it literally it was a stylistic sort, sort of kind of thing. And again, you made it to the all star game. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and you know, I, I think for this idea of war as, as this, you know, completely uh, uh, completely dominating one that we have right now, total war, I think is also an unusual concept in society. For example, uh, in history, um, for example, in, in Greece, people would literally, it would be like a rugby match when they were trying to fight over a piece of land. You bring your phalanx, I'll bring my phalanx, we'll jab at each other, and then, you know, if I retreat a bit, you're not about killing my entire sort of tribe or, or my entire sort of clan, but you just take the land, right? So it was very, very much like a like a rap battle or like a like 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 a, like a rugby match. Uh, and the question like is like a one v one. Yeah, sort of precisely. Um, and, and the question is, what what would happen to war? Why is war now like, you know, c c like just totalitarian, uh, total? Um, and Gerard has essentially two answers. One is uh, again the physical, and one is the social symbolic. Mm -hmm. uh, the physical is a more easier one. It's it's nukes. Um, so before war, you had to maneuver in terrain. You had to gather up resources, and it would be hard for you to, to land a devastating blow, right? Like the, the nukes dropped in uh, World War II on a sort of devastation impact. You know, probably the Mongol hordes, you know, did it actually a much more uh, did, much, did, much, did much more sort of harm, absolutely. Mm. And also the, the firebombing, I think, of Tokyo actually, you know, killed much more people and, and resulted in much more damage than the bombs actually. And so, what's unique about the nukes is not its singular destructive power, but the rapidity at which rivals can immediately escalate, right? And that's mutually for destruction. If you watch like Doctor Strangelove, it's like insofar as you send the one nuke over. I, I wouldn't say it's rational to nuke you out of oblivion, but it's not crazy for that to be a strategy. And the second and the most interesting uh, part of that is the symbolic change, and that has to do with Napoleon and, and Napoleon's idea of um, total conscription. So before Napoleon, a lot of war was fought by uh, 
aristocrats or, or local militia conscription, mm. but Napoleon sort of motivated the entire state. Uh, there was total conscription. And even when you were not in the front lines, for example, you were an old man or woman, you were expected to contribute to the war effort uh, mm. in some way by like telling war stories, making ammunition. And from that point on, the, uh, the line between civilian and uh, soldier actually became blurred. And the, the first modern, Gerard traces the first modern origins of terrorism into the Spanish revolt against the Napoleonic forces. Um, so when Napoleon conquered, uh, I think, Spain, it was, such, it was so devastating. And the line between soldier and civilian was so blurred. You had the first emergence of this sort of guerrilla civilian resistance behind the lines that Gerard sees uh, as sort of being the uh, a genealogy of modern-day terrorism. Mm. And so uh, because symbolically war was no longer the sport but became this arena of existential extermination in combination with the fact that we have these tools to actually exterminate each other mm -hmm. at, a, at a literal buttons press. And on top of that, so, so there, there, there's really like, now, now, now we, should, we should put everything back, the story back, right? Like violence is increasing. Everyone's getting more competitive. We have no way to resolve violence. Violence was channel, channeled through capitalism productively for about a, you know, a few centuries maybe. Law is breaking. So, the, so capitalism is fundamentally gonna break, Gerard thinks. Mm -hmm. And once that breaks, the last sort of defense is usually war. We, we, we let that out in sort of a, like, sort of almost like a large-scale ritual, a large-scale cathartic event. But today, if war happens, it's going to be total like between like nation states. And so, so that's why he thinks that we're, again, the very like 10-minute version of, of why he thinks we're headed to apocalypse. Well, in doing research for this, I found out how close we actually were to maybe total destruction with the submarine. Yeah, so, so uh, most people, uh, or, or I think a lot of people know this, but it, it just blows my mind to, to hear how close we were. So in, in, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was a, a Foxtrot-class uh, uh, Soviet submarine that was around the, the Caribbean, I think, and an American carrier group was pursuing it. And they were dropping signaling depth charges, these like underwater bombs, trying to destroy it or making it surface. And the submarine crew lost contact to Moscow for about, I think, like seven days. And they thought that with all these bombs, a new world war had broken out. And they had a nuclear tip torpedo in the submarine. Now, they, it wasn't a submarine, like today's submarine, that can hit mainland America. But that submarine, I think, could, would have destroyed the fleet. And of course, that, like, that is probably just like a few steps away from Russia and, and U.S. sort of nuking the shit out of each other. And on that submarine, it required all three officers to sign off to, to launch the nuke. Mm. Now, only one person did not sign off. Like, I can't remember his name now, but it, 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 like, that's how close we were. Like, the, the will of one man was all that stood in between the way between us and almost certainly a nuclear strike and, and very likely nuclear Armageddon as well. And so, you know, apocalypse has kind of, uh, gone out of fashion, really, these days. Almost every other age, there's a heavily apocalyptic sentiment, either positive or, or, or negative. But I think ever since we grew up, actually, we don't even think about it. But mm. I think it's much, much closer than we think. And, and you know, in, in the beginning phases of uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine, I think I at least had a very intimate awareness of that. I immediately started buying like potassium iodine or like whatever the supplement is that helps you if you're if you're like exposed to nuclear radiation. Mm. So I think it's becoming more and more real. Does Gerard talk or think about the idea that pretty much every generation in the past has said that the world is going to end? Like I feel like that's such a common trope 
And does he have a rebuttal for that idea? That's a great question. Um, well, one thing is that he's not in the sort of mind business of trying to tell you exactly, you know, it's going to end in this day and that day. Right. And I, I find those predictions sort of good for nothing but humor in retrospect. There's these like early Marxists in the Frankfurt schools like on this day, capitalism, and like it's, just, it's kind of ridiculous and, and shows, shows, shows a naive unawareness of the limitations of thought. And um, yeah, but, but to your question, no. And, and, and frankly, I, I'm much more convinced about Gerard's apocalyptic thesis than I was before. And what but, changed? But, to make you more convinced? All the things that, that we said so far, yeah. just his entire argument, just how close we are, were. But, but I'm not, I don't have the high conviction that Gerard and, 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 and some, of the, some of these other like, uh, folks do that, that we're like, heading into apocalypse this generation. Um, so what's your conviction on the end of the world percentage? I, I don't. This goes back to my whole thing about me being me not having thought enough about these ideas to, 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 to form an opinion. That's not a cop out. That's, that's yeah, genuinely yeah. like that's, that's that's genuinely something that, you know, I, I mean, that's a big that's a big question. You know, like, yeah. I just don't know. Like, I, I think that's possible. It's convincing. It's more possible and convincing than people think it is. Mm. But yeah. What would Gerard say about Bitcoin? Uh, oh, there's so much there's so there's so much to say there I, I don't even know uh, yeah, what, what okay, so, I mean, that, that's a whole other podcast man. Yeah, yeah fair enough I, I was the reason why I asked that is because I was listening to a previous podcast I think Bitcoin fixes this where you drew Jimmy, a, yeah. with Jimmy where you drew a great connection between satoshi and jesus and <laughs> he, he he drew that connection let me <laughs> let, let me be clear but by the end of it you were you were saying wow like i i didn't see this before yeah no i, I thought it was interesting that uh you know part of what G, uh, quite, uh, gerard sorry <laughs> easy mistake to make if you if you read gerard <laughs> as much as i do that gerard thinks uh is very is very notable about christ is in these precise words, he withdrew in the very moment he could dominate. Mm. And the idea is that when Gerard, I mean, <laughs> Christ, I'm sorry. <laughs> when Christ came back to life, I'm very tired. Uh, when Christ came back to life, he did come back on the earth, right? And at that moment, he could dominate. Why? He just sh shows up to the, to the Romans, shows up to the Jews, and like, I, you, you tried to kill me, I'm literally back. Yes. But at that very moment, he withdrew. And Gerard thinks that that withdrawal is also what we must... Uh, uh, imitate. Mm. So his prescription, very unsatisfying, is to imitate the uh, uh, contemporary of, of Hegel and Schelling, Holderlin, this 19th century German poet who literally uh, went into a tower for the last 40 years of his life and completely withdrew from society. Mm. And that, Gerard thinks, is the only possible normative solution. Uh, and so Gerard thinks very heavily of uh, Gerard thinks that withdrawal is a very important part of of, of Christ, um, and why he's very different from say the Greek gods who remain very close and proximate to society, and and the only thing that uh, I, I I was playing around with in that conversation with, with, with Jimmy is that you know Satoshi almost also always also seems to withdraw. Um, and especially in a moment where he could very well dominate, mm. right? Because, it, you know, if you could prove that you're Satoshi now, you'd be like the most popular, influential, one of the richest people in the world. But, but yeah, he withdrew. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about. I have some tweets here I want to discuss of yours, which Please, were yeah. interesting to me. And I feel like 
I didn't know before, but uh, yeah, let's get into them real quick. Also, how are we doing on time? We're doing five fifteen. We're good. Five fifteen, right? Yeah, I got you. Oh, it's five fifteen. Great. We can we can go on for. A long, I yeah. got you. Great. I got you. Just let me know when we're at five fifty. Yeah, five thirty. We're good. Cool. No, no, I, 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 would, I would like to stay at the 5.50 if there's more content. I only book till 5.30. Gotcha. So. <laughs> Hitler was a vegetarian out of concern for animal welfare, a fact he was proud to repeatedly advertise over dinner parties. What's this tweet about? I was mind blown at this idea. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just a factual uh, statement. Um, I, I was listening to uh, uh, great courses. Uh, another um, this great courses is, is the sort of uh, lecture series that that that, 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 I, that I really admire and, and, and modeled a lot of what we were trying to do after. Mm. Um, I can't remember the professor, but I was just listening to two days ago on this uh, whole um, history of the of the Third Reich of of, of sort of. Um, Hitler's empire, um, and he just mentioned that he mentioned that uh, uh, you know Hitler was a, was a vegetarian, and Hitler was a, you know he was a vegetarian out of moral reasons uh, for the concern of animal welfare. He often told people in his dinner parties that you know look how cruel they are. He would bring pictures often of uh, you know of animals suffering, and, and keep in mind like that that was his political rhetoric as well. You know we, mm. we are not a war loving people. War loving people. We want equality. We want peace. We want agency of, of, of the German people. Um, and, and the point there that I was trying to emphasize is um, there are, the, uh, again, uh, none of my intuitions at, at this stage in my life are firm enough to, for me to describe them as a conviction. So this is just an intuition at this point that I, I'm just very suspicious of anyone who's out there just advertising mm -hmm. their sort of moral high ground, no, no matter what they are advertising. Because I think many times, if you do have that sort of moral uh, character, you, you don't feel a need to advertise your advertise it that much, right? Like, like, yeah. So, so that, that that's what the, the, the it, it, like that flat that fact blew my mind as much as it did yours, and, and that's why that's why I tweeted it. Yeah, it, it reminded me like climate change almost, and and people just professing and and. Um, being really interested in climate change. I don't know why that was the first thought because it yeah. seems as if it's a religion almost. Yeah, so so Sh I think it was Schmidt who said that um, progressives love humanity in order to hate humans. Oof. And uh, I think w what he meant by that is in many ways when we are championing these... Um, uh, causes for social the, and, and not, not, not just causes, these apocalyptic causes, mm. these like... You know, universal apocalyptic causes, um, so, you know, animal welfare, uh, climate change. Uh, I think Schmidt and, and Gerard, I think, would agree with this. Identifies a lot of the motivation to fly those banners is not a cause. It's not a concern for the, those causes themselves, mm. but in order to have like a higher moral ground to stand over others. Now, that's not saying that. You know, animal welfare or climate change is suspect. Yeah. But 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 saying that people who sort of lauded or promoted, uh, I think, are somewhat suspicious to say the very least. And you know, um, I mean, in my in my own life, the sort of the kindest people um, are, are often also the, the quietest. And, and, and you know, they're just con con and uh, the one more thing I was going to say to this. A good example um, on this might be your friend being the investment banker. 
your investment banker acquaintance. Exactly. Who- you know, that's exactly what I was going to say. So the story that, that I told in the lecture was a, uh, an acquaintance in college, and he was an uh, economic progressive. And every time I'd meet him freshman, sophomore year, like, Jonathan, like, the tax, the rich are getting away with this. Like, think about, how, you know, how, how bad that the poor are treated. And, you know, I was like, wow, this is a great guy. You know, he, he's, he's so, in, like, he's so charitable. Like, I wish I could be as compassionate as he was. And then uh, he confessed to me. I can't believe he confessed to me this. He's like, yeah, I, uh, I'm a progressive. Not because I love the poor, but I hate the rich. Wow. And, uh, and he, he, he was a sort of middle class, upcome, upbringing guy. He grew up in an upper middle class uh, household. And he was, uh, he was always made to feel that he didn't have any money. Mm. And so his moral stance was a way to gain victory, a moral victory you know, o- over other people. Um, and it turns out he's now an investment banker. Mm. And it's because he never had a problem with money at all. The fact that he hated it so much was because he wanted it so much, mm. but, but couldn't get it. And this is Nietzsche's fundamental idea of sort of resentment. And I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not completely innocent of this. I think after I you know, dropped out my, 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 uh, uh, to do a company that failed and went back to school, uh, I think I was very resentful about people who were successful in, in industry. And I think a lot of the reason why I so turned, did such a sharp right turn into Buddhism and philosophy was like, oh, look at me. I have this grasp on this eternal idea. And all you have is your measly $100 million company. And so I, I think you know, part of the reason why I'm so su- su- suspicious is because I was, you know, I was, I was really guilty um, of, uh, of this t- type of psychology. Um, same thing with mimetic theory, by the way. I think I, the only reason that it appealed to me so much was because I, I was really guilty of, of everything that Gerard said that you shouldn't do. It's fascinating. Speaking of mimetic theory, maybe, or related, this was just an interesting fact, which is in both Chinese and English, the word for chicken also refers to penises. <laughs> what grand cross-civilizational insight into human nature lies hidden in this puzzle? That was just a joke. <laughs> that, was such, that was just a joke. Is that real or no? Yeah, that's real. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like, but but that's just so random and so crazy. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe it's the shape of the head that, like, the rooster's head. Or yeah, I, I don't know. And I think someone commented that that um that the Spanish word is also the same or something no way. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Learn something new every day. Um, another tweet. You saw a poster that said games for change. And the question is, why does everything in society need to be a part of a grand moral arc? Why can't games just be for fun? It is something we've seen recently where the idea of being that everything has to be significant at a at a grand stage. Yeah. And, and I think this is probably a sign or again, the, everything I've said today is just me armchair, I'm literally armchair <laughs> philosophizing. Um, I, I think perhaps it's a sign of society in deep trouble. Because the same reason, remember how we discussed you only are only after glory if the activity itself doesn't motivate you. Mm. Perhaps it's a sign that people's lives, like in the in, in every lived lived experience of it, is so uh, hollow that they feel like they, they need to grasp on to a to a sort of moral arc. Right? This was uh, Hegel's, for example, uh, description of how Christianity gained so much popularity mm. was that it, it appealed to the slave class. That that the slaves in in Rome didn't have. A, a good life in, in this world, and then they, they, they were promised with this grand moral arc. Mm. And this also ties, and, and I think it becomes really scary um, when all things in society have to be tied to a grand moral arc. You know, games for change, you know, you know, you know, 
even your 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 even your investments now have a taken on upon a moral force with ESG, right? Even your purchases mm. are you know you're recyclable, not recyclable. And I think the moralization of society is, is a very terrifying, uh, terrifying idea. And you know, you should go back into Hannah Rent's Origins of Totalitarianism, where, where she described like the, the best sort of analogy that she gave for what a totalitarian society is, is one where you know you couldn't even play chess for itself. Mm-hmm. That there's no activity that is outside the realm of the political. And you know, if we, if we elaborate on her idea a bit, maybe the idea goes something like, you know, you, this is a chess game going on. We're playing on the, in the logic of chess. I'm just trying to beat you. But then, you know, certainly my line is organized in a way that's you know reminiscent of uh, Russia versus Germany, and we're we're in Soviet Union. And I actually can't make this move because making this move would have a political implication that. Oh no 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 no! no I'm sorry. So she was describing the situation in 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 in, 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 in Nazi Germany, and I think it was. Uh, Himmler said something like, you know, the ideal sort of Nazi man would be one who like couldn't even play chess for its own sake or something like that. I, I butchered that quote. But well, it's like if the king takes the queen, it's like, well, that's an example of the patriarch. Yeah, exactly. Precisely. That, 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 that would be a moral equivalent today. And so it becomes very dangerous. And that's a very bad sign that I yeah. think society is being caught up in these moral arcs. Well, one thing that I've talked to David about, I think via email, is that the idea that everyone has an idea a political opinion about every issue and a new political uh, opinion or something will come up today that people won't care about tomorrow or it won't be at the forefront of their mind. And what does that mean? And what does that say? Where for one week it was like Ukraine, we're all with Ukraine. The next week it's like abortion. And and it's like everyone is, is casting judgments about specific people based on them posting or not posting specific things. It's like, at what point can you just exist as a human being yeah. without having a perspective on every everything that happens in society? Yeah, and, and I think a very odd phenomenon that was very apparent to me and my foreign eye was um, how much America and democracies in, in general, but America in particular, wanted its people to have opinions. Mm. Um, the, the most sort of craziest examples and the hilarious examples I can think of this is people asking beauty pageants, what should we do with the Iraq war? <laughs> like, what, what should we do with, like, how, how should we control inflation? Right? These are, like, literal <laughs> questions you ask beauty. And I'm yeah. like, what, what, I mean, I don't know about the inflation thing, right. but definitely, definitely the Iraq war. Like, they, they would ask, like, crazy geopolitical co- uh, questions at the end of the beauty pageant. Yeah. And I'm like, these are questions that experts can dedicate their entire and have dedicated their entire lives to and have not come close to and like you're expecting your average citizenry to have a to take a stance on these things and like and there's something great about it right because you're empowered to investigate the, mm. the, these questions where, where in another society you might not be but there's there's also something just fundamentally humorous and, and just laughable about people taking an opinion on these things and this is why again this is a recurring theme in, in this podcast like i i, I really don't have any like ideas that I hold strongly now that, that I think are convictions. Like, I feel like I need to do so much more work and, and live life much, much more to, 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 to really take a stance. And yet, people who are 18, 19, they, 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 their belief in these ideas are, are, are I think, are clearly disproportionate to, to how much work they've actually done about to validate them. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful place to come to a close because your insights are basically, these are the perspectives that I've studied these are the people I've learned from. These are the ideas. And I literally have a notebook of, of things to, to look into and research after talking to you, which is really exciting for me. But you're, you're basically saying, look, I don't know. So I study, I learn, I build, 
And I, I tried my best to figure out these ideas so that I can become a more knowledgeable citizen or I can just find more joy in my day to day. And I, I, it's a really refreshing take and perspective. So thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you tremendously. And where should we send people to let them know more about you and everything you're up to? Well, um, by the time we, we launch these lecture, uh, this, this podcast, the, the rest six of our lectures are going to be coming online. And so if we could include that in the show notes, that'd be great. Yes, we absolutely will. And where should we keep up with you? Uh, your latest tweets, like the ones we just. Uh, yeah, you can, I guess you can follow me on Twitter if you if you don't mind your uh, your, your feed being polluted, um, <laughs> or or you can just uh, subscribe to my newsletter, uh, JonathanB.com, and I, I whenever I feel like it, I, I sort of I quite lazy, I just send out some random thoughts, and so. Nice. Well, we'll put that those below, and thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having this. It was really fun.